Today on Ag News Daily. One thing that you really find out soon is uh, internationally, U.S. soy is considered sustainable. And it's got to stay that way because it, it gives us a leg up over our competition. Listeners, welcome to a September 21st edition, 2022 episode of Dag News Daily Podcast, sponsor-free, ad-free, straight to the point today. This is Tanner Winterhop, joined by Delaney Howell. Hey, Tanner. I'm good. How are you? Good. What do you do? You think listeners are excited that it's ad-free? Uh, I hope they are, but we have some pretty good sponsors. So either way. <laughs> Oh, uh, no, that's good. Where are you still out there in Arizona or did you bounce around? I am. I'm in Arizona until tomorrow and then I'll be back, back in Iowa, back in God's country. But yesterday, Tanner, I got to try some really authentic, uh, they don't call it Tex-Mex down here. They find that very offensive, but some cuisine that is native to um, Arizona because I didn't realize this, but there's five seas of Arizona that really support this area's economy. I haven't figured out what all five of them are. One of them is citrus. Um, another one is cotton and mostly they're, they're agriculturally related. I'm guessing one might be cattle, but yesterday I got to try a native dish, uh, with lots of different flavors and varieties. But one of the things that really struck me, Tanner was fry bread, which is kind of basically like a deep fat fried piece of bread, similar to a funnel cake, but it's not sweet and it was delicious. And they use um, native, usually flour from down here. So I'm getting to try lots of good cuisine. You're making me hungry. Just talking about it, probably also (laughs) making the listeners hungry. Uh, But I tell you what might kill their appetite is uh, not necessarily ag related, but certainly storm and ocean related. There are currently a pod of about 230 whales now stranded on Tasmania's west coast. I don't know if you saw that headline, Delaney, or not, but uh, just days after 14 sperm whales were found beached on an island off the southeastern coast, now we go to Tasmania's western coast. This is typically uh, not a site that they see. They are stranded on the ocean beach which appears to be a pilot of whales, at least half of them are presumed to still be alive. But the Department of Natural Resources and Environment said yesterday that a team of marine conservation program specialists are assembling whale rescue gear and are headed to the area to conserve what is left to be taken care of. The problem they have, Delaney, is these whales are protected species. So once deceased, it is an offense to interfere with the carcass. So uh, hopefully they can save these whales, get them back out there from being beached. But it'll be interesting to see what kind of discussion comes about those that have already deceased, unfortunately, and have to remain in place on this Tasmanian beach. Well, Tanner, I am going to take us over to some fresh news regarding Russia and Ukraine. And there's a few things at play here. Of course, markets are largely watching what's going on with the Fed meeting this week, but they're also watching to see what's going to happen here between Russia and Ukraine, especially wheat prices, because we're continuing to see tensions rise. And now news reports are indicating that Russia has announced 
that referendums will take place in occupied territories of Ukraine to allow those people to decide if they want to be annexed by Russia, Tanner. This is a big move. And we saw on Wednesday, President Putin declared a partial military mobilization to call as many as 300,000 reservists in a dramatic bid to reverse setbacks that we've seen recently in this war. He, um, in a national broadcast, 9 a.m. Moscow time, lashed out at the West and said these staged referendums have been planned and that they are a precursor to the annexation of occupied territories in Ukraine and said that they would, didn't say outright, but hinted, that they would use nuclear power to defend those territories, Tanner. You know, I saw the headline, but got very quickly bored in the article. So I'm glad that you dove deeper into that. And it sounds like it's a much more interesting topic that it's giving the power or at least the decision-making ability to the residents, correct? Yes. I don't know. I think on the um, eastern border of Ukraine, you know, during the Soviet Union, obviously, people kind of had to pick where they wanted to live after post-Soviet. And so I think there's a lot of uh, Russian nationalists that may live in Ukraine, although they may not feel loyal to Russia or Ukraine. So it'll be interesting to see how these people choose and how they go about choosing, I think, is kind of my question. Yeah. Quite interesting. Well, I can spin off of your article just a little bit and head to Saudi Arabia. The Saudi Aramco chief is seriously concerned that a global economy rebound will severely cause impacts to the spare oil capacity. So the CEO is warning that even though we're looking at a global recession now, any type of marginal economic rebound could kill off spare oil capacity. This could deepen the, er, the world's energy crisis that we've been reporting on for a while. Even though Europe has already seen prices soaring, if the economy bounces back, this could become detrimental to the world energy supply. More investment is necessary by companies to improve the supply situation. He's encouraging that even though global slowdown is apparent and in discussions about the U.S. economy after this Fed hike that we anticipate coming this afternoon, that oil and gas suppliers should take this time to rebuild up the reserves. He's estimating that the spare oil capacity currently only accounts for a mere 1.5% of the global demand and states that it would be important to try and get that figure up above 20% and cites what could happen looking at the energy prices in Europe now soaring over a thousand percent since the invasion of Ukraine driven by Russia trying to throttle their energy flows. So an interesting look. It's an individual that I think is calling for a recession to continue, Delaney, rather than that of a quick rebound to try and get oil stocks built back up. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, when you look at today's Fed fund meeting, Tanner, there are traders that are Placing bets to some extent on what they think today's interest rate will be raised by. And about 82% are putting odds that it'll only be raised by 75 basis points, while the other, you know, not quite 20% are saying likely a whole percentage point. So do you want to make a bet here, Tanner, what you think? I I don't think there's going to be much surprise. I think it's going to be another three quarters. The issue that I see happening is there's another follow-up meeting this fall yet, and that could be one to where instead of 
tapering down to a half, it may be another three quarters of a percent. So I, I don't see a lot of things changing in the news. So my bet would probably be placed with the majority of those pullers. Yeah. And I think that's why there is a majority betting that way, Tanner. But one thing we don't have to bet on is continued drought. I know we've been talking a lot about crop conditions, but I saw this article and wanted to report and share about it as we continue to watch the drought monitor worsen. 86% of Kansas is short or very short on soil moisture, uh, which is according to last week's crop progress report. I haven't had time to check out this week's, but I would expect it to be continuing to expand D4 exceptional drought expanded into Southwest Kansas. And we're also seeing it D3 continue to grow in impact as well, but Kansas certainly is, and Texas I know somewhat as well, having a lot of the drought this year impacting their state in particular. Yeah, I had seen that article, and it, it looks like all the areas that we've been reporting on and having, having guests call in from uh, to give us updates. So it'll be another one to see what type of moisture we get this fall over winter before we look at crop growing weather for next year. Coming out of Lincoln, Nebraska, though, Clear Flame Engine Technologies announced on Tuesday that their company has entered into key partnerships to help meet its goal of commercializing its ethanol-based diesel engine technology by the end of 2023. This is a company, Delaney, that I was trying to get an interview with at Farm Progress Show because it is fascinating. Clear Flame did sign memorandums of understanding with Reviva and Vanderhags Incorporated to integrate their technology into a Class 8 truck, according to the news release that came out. Uh, Clear Flame already launched its first pilot fleet trial with Bex Hybrids, the largest family-owned retail seed company in the U.S., the coalition with Central Indiana Ethanol, Countrymark and Co-Alliance Cooperative has now partnered to sell E98, a 98% ethanol blend, to Bex to fuel this pilot truck. The Clear Flame, Clear Flame engine can run on 98% ethanol straight off the rack or even E85 so long as the fuel is close to that 85% blended ethanol. Clear Flame's agreements with engine modifications are not an issue with environmental compliance because they are running under an EPA exemption right now. They are hoping to establish more cross-industry partnerships to test out this technology. Right now, Bex is using these fleet trucks on short hauls and long hauls to provide as much data available. Vanderhags is located in the U.S. and Canada with nine locations throughout the Midwest, and they will be the ones installing the clear frame engines into the semi-trucks to hopefully create another source of demand for the nation's corn products, Delaney. Well, speaking of increased demand, Tanner, as we know, COVID really accelerated uh, demand for meat processing at smaller facilities. Minnesota livestock product processors looking to start or change their business model may be eligible to apply for a grant administered through the Minnesota Department of Agriculture. And the department is anticipating to award up to $1.4 million dollars two different applicants. The maximum equipment award is $150,000 and the minimum award is $1,000, but they're hoping to give 20 to 60 grants, depending on the number of finalists and uh, grant applicants. 
but their intent is to increase, of course, Minnesota-raised livestock as well as Minnesota processing facilities that support increased livestock growth. So not specific to the beef industry here, Tanner, but definitely specific to increasing local meat processing, which is a lot of states we've seen that um, different type of legislation or grants come to fruition here in Iowa. We've seen that Nebraska, now Minnesota, and quite a few other states as well, Tanner. Yeah, Cassidy's been doing a good job of keeping her nose on those grants and funding opportunities related to meat processing. So hopefully it provides more incentive for those to re-enter or expand their business lines. Uh, what I've got here, though, it could be farmers. So according to the most recent survey, ag producers, especially young farmers, depend on off-farm income from off-farm jobs. Maybe it's in meat processing or meat directly to the consumer's. Ag producers often depend upon these jobs, especially when they're starting out in farming. According to this study from CoBank and the University of Missouri, they released that 56% of farm operators had a job off the farm in 2017. That is up from 37% in 1974. So among producers under the age of 35, 63% had other off the farm jobs. Most of that right now, Delaney, is for reliable, consistent income and health care benefits. Those are the top two reasons for off-farm jobs. Half of the off-farm households were negative farm income in a given year is now subsidized from other income sources. 82% of the income comes from off-farm sources, giving producers more stability and the ability to support their farms, according to the University of Missouri. They are among the largest pool of diversified income sources that help reduce financial risk. So quite an interesting statistic there. Young farmers, Delaney, had an average debt income ratio of about 21% from 2011 to 2019 versus the 6.3% of those who have off-farm jobs. So it shows here, though, that maybe they're financially smart decisions as they carry less debt. But surprised me a little bit that 63% of farmers under the age of 35 had other jobs, Delaney. I guess I'm not surprised by that because we're part of that percentage that has off-farm jobs, Tanner. Absolutely. You're, you're right when you look at that. I, though, however, don't consider myself as a primary farmer. Mm-hmm. So I, I actually took myself out of the category as a banker first. Maybe some would joke a podcast host second and uh, the farmer's third. So interesting statistic, I thought, from our last piece of news today. Absolutely. But we do have to hit markets here before we chat with Tim from U.S. Soybeans. And it looks like markets are having an ugly day today. Here at the midday, we're seeing new crop corn down about 10 cents at 682. New crop soybeans down at 17 cents, trading right around 1461. Wheat continuing to weigh heavily on the potential conflict going on, continued conflict going on, I should say, between Russia and Ukraine. December Chicago wheat down about five cents here at the midday at 889. And livestock today are having a mixed trading day with December live cattle down about two pennies on the day at 151. Uh, November feeders up 80 cents this morning at 182. And October lean hawks down about seven pennies on the morning at 9590. Now, Tanner, 
we have had some great partnership opportunities with United Soybean Board. And I know we're continuing that discussion today with a conversation you had at Farm Progress Show. That's right. Let's get into it. Proud to have Tim Bardol here, Rippy Farmer, right here in Central Iowa. Wouldn't you call Rippy Central Iowa, Tim? Yes, definitely. Absolutely. So here at Farm Progress Show 2022, here to talk about our soy checkoff. Dave, do you know what the soy checkoff is? I don't. Tim, what I'm, is? I'm anxious to learn more. What is the soy checkoff? Yeah, the soy checkoff is um, it's a federal or national checkoff, one half of one percent of the price of soybeans that you sell uh, is goes to the checkoff and then um, half that checkoff money stays at uh, like here in Iowa with Iowa Soybean Association to okay. invest in and then nationally half of all the checkoff money goes to the United Soybean Board for them to invest. Right. And then you get to have your message heard, things to help the Soybean Association move policy forward, uh, making sure that it is still a great state to grow soybeans in, correct? Um, not policy with checkoff. Okay. It's uh, all non-policy. Damn. So we're talking investing in genetics. Um, in our local farm. producers, basically. You're putting yep. the money back into the local community. Yep. We're doing everything we can to invest in places that, in turn, um, for in Iowa, it, so it'll help the Iowa soybean producer and nationally um, to help U.S. So, uh, stay the, the really a, a fantastic, sustainable product that is used, of course, here, but all around the world. And I'm glad. I appreciate the clarity because I know I'm probably not the only one with maybe a misconception around that, Dave. Yeah. So when I think uh, soybeans, I, you know, Tanner, you're a banker, so cash is king, right? Yep. I've always heard corn is king. Now we're talking about soybean here. Uh, what, d- tell me why soybeans should be king. Uh, soybeans are a, a fantastic crop used for anything from human food, food for animals, um, uh, soy diesel, um, sustainable aviation fuel is, is really coming around. Aviation and, fuel, that's cool. I hadn't heard of that one. Yeah, that uh, uh, friend of me on the Iowa board wants T-shirts that uh, says, um, I'm in the aviation business. So, um, soybean farmer asked me soybean how. Soybean farmer asked me how. That's <laughs> those, pretty good. Those would be fun t-shirts to make up. Absolutely. I, I think it's fun to, to walk around this show and we've had a lot of conversations. Like I said, this is day three. So we've, we've got to meet a lot of people and sustainability continues to be a prime focus. A lot, a lot of companies are focusing on either creating a sustainable product or helping the farmer be more sustainable. So what are some sustainable practices that how many times did you say that? Was that like nine sustainables in there? I hope it's not a drinking game. (laughs) (laughs) What, what can soybean farmers do to use more sustainable practices? Drink again. Um, well maybe to start with, I'll talk about, uh, farmers for soil health. Okay. And, and that's an initiative with, uh, the United soybean board, um, National uh, corn growers, national pork producers, and the American Soybean Association to really um, try to rev up the adoption of cover crops. Okay. The goal is to have 30 million acres of cover crops by 2030. And um, it's something that is important as, as a farmer. 
Um, cover crops are real good for soil health, health and, and on the production side, but also on the environmental side with water quality, uh, reduced uh, erosion, um, carbon sequestration. Um, there's just a lot of positives. It's not um, maybe necessarily the easiest thing to get started, but with this uh, initiative, industry and supply chain partners have um, kind of ponied up to, to help with education and, and the communication between farmers who want to start. And um, with that, you can kind of eliminate some of the growing pains that like we had when we started eight years ago. Uh, there's there's a lot of, of information out there, and there's a lot of ways to use cover crops, no matter where you're you're located in in the U.S. or you know from one field to another can be different. So uh, when when I heard initiative, I wondered like, is this a program? Are we funding? Is it education? Like, what what is it? I think you just answered that that we're just educating farmers. It's not like a mandatory program or anything, but you you want to encourage people to do what it sounds like you've already done. Yeah, it's definitely encouraging. Um, also, the Farmers for Soil Health is partnering with uh, USDA's NRCS, trying okay. to just get more information out there and promote cover crops. You know, one thing is um, being a soybean farmer and also being part of, some of the uh, United Soybean Board, one thing that you really find out soon is uh, internationally, U.S. soy is considered sustainable. Oh, very good. And it's got to stay that way because it, it gives us a leg up over our competition. So it's very important as U.S. producers to continue to move forwards on that sustainability, um, whether it be cover crop, no-till. We've got to keep keep things going to, to keep that world Wide market, and this isn't just the Soybean Association talking about soil health. You mentioned a couple other entities that are in on this, and so initiative to all farmers to basically uh, you, you gave a couple talking points there uh, for soil health, uh, from carbon sequestration to uh, uh, to more organic matter, uh, healthier for the crops. Is is there like one big uh, glaring reason that we want to put cover crops on uh, that that you could give me, give our listeners? Um, one big. Glaring reason, probably not. It's a combination. Okay. And if you notice, uh, pork producers are in this group, and uh, the reason for that is there, you know, there's so much of the soybeans and corn, both that goes into into the pork industry as feed. And in fact, it's roughly uh, half of the um, environmental footprint of pork is from corn and soybeans. So that's why teaming up, and if you improve it for corn and soybeans, um, it also moves pork closer to their sustainability goals. Yeah, I like that. I like the collaborative collaborative efforts, and we've noticed that here in our podcast interviews about a lot of collaboration. So, Tim, we appreciate you jumping on the podcast and being a voice for soybean farmers. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the listeners before we wrap this up? I guess... uh, only that if, you know, any questions or want more information, you can go to ussoy.org and um, get, get the information you need and, you know, look into, look into cover crops and they work and they work well. So thank you. Well, very good. Thanks. Thanks again on that. And uh, give me the website one more time where we go if we want to know more about uh, what, your, what your program is and cover crops. 
ussoy.org. 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 Well, thank you again, Tim. Absolutely. Great third day of the Farm Progress Show. We appreciate you for hanging out with us. Thank you. It's always fun to talk to a farmer producer and one in a leadership position. Of course, sometimes they can be a little bit nervous. Tim did a great job, though, conveying what this U.S. soy does for producers. And it was good to get that clear message again, Delaney. It certainly was, Tanner, but we're going to have some great conversations coming up on the podcast here over the next couple of weeks. We've been really scheduling things out way in advance because we know that there are a lot of great topics we want to try to fit in here into the podcast. So folks, be sure you hit subscribe so that you don't miss those upcoming episodes and find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Ag News Daily. Tanner, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let the people go. 